The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. that time again welcome back sour hour on the brewing network i'm your host <laughs> jay nailed, nailed it. it nailed it here with uh scott have you had that on your notes since yeah. you've done the show of always? course yeah <laughs> yeah it's like do you ever watch the show um uh flight of the concords never heard of it Oh, of course! I love Flight of the Con. I play I play Business Time all the time on this uh, in the show breaks. Oh yeah, that's right, that's right. But it's like you know the they take uh, the attendance at the top of their meetings. Murray does. Mm-hmm. He's like uh, <laughs> Brit, present. And there's like there's three guys there. Yes, present. That, that's like this for me. So it's like yeah, I'm your host. I just need this. You know, it gets me in the flow. It's nice just to have some stuff off the top. Yeah. When Scott doesn't have something ready to go. Great. Yep. Jermaine. Jermaine? Well, yeah, obviously. Yeah, well, you're here. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm here, so why do we have to say that I'm here? Well, just I've got it all written down, you know. <laughs> exactly. See, I've got it all written down. Because that's what we do. That's, that's what you do. That's what we do at the top of the show. You're a, you're a prepared man. Arguable. But, uh, yeah, so tonight's show is uh, some some questions and mostly answers. If you listen to the last episode, I think we got to two, two about two questions. So we'll we'll try and beat that this show. Beagle had to take off, so uh don't join or call us. But if you want to email us, uh Scott at the Brewing Network dot com or Jay at the Brewing Network dot com and uh go ahead and subscribe and leave f- feedback on iTunes and that's all I got at the top. I think what we want to do just right away is welcome in not only a great sponsor from sourbeerblog.com, but a great friend. Of the show, he just got out of a 18-hour operation on a wild yeast cell. He's Doctor Lambic, Matt Miller. How are you still going after such an intense operation, Doc? I, I don't know, I don't know <laughs> but I'm glad to it. be here. It's tough, you know, working those long hours with you know the wild yeast and bacteria cells, just with the tiny, tiny scalpel, you know, <laughs> just but just uh. You, you know, it's a it, calling. It, it, yeah, you well, it has to be because it and because it, it doesn't really make you the wealthy man that it once mm, used to no, this profession. No. So it, you just yeah, you have to be just sort of driven internally. Toughest on the family, I think. Yeah. No, really, yeast insurance companies are where the money's at now. Yeah. The re- I mean, Obama yeast. Don't get me started. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that, that was that was skewing way too nerdy and weird. <laughs> but how's it going? Going great. How are you guys? Doing just great. We're really uh, thrilled to have you on the show. A lot of great stuff has been going up on your uh, your site of late. It's ourbeardblog.com. And, of course, we're always excited to see the new articles coming out. But for those who haven't been over there, what's new and exciting for you? And uh, what do you recommend for the people who haven't been able to visit just yet? We've been doing a couple new things lately. Um, we a uh, couple... 
two articles back, um, did an interview with um, Caleb Statton of Upland Brewing and um, profiled their brewery and sour program and a couple of their um, collaboration beers with the local winery. So that was a um, entertaining and a educational article. Tried to roll in some good sour beer info, but also just um, interesting read about how they do. They're doing things over at Upland, and then uh, followed that up recently with an article about ester formation, which is a pretty heavy dive into the science of um, esters and generally yeast biology. That's been quite a hot topic for us, not only on this show, but, but recently. And, you know, what, what, what were some things in your research that surprised you or you thought were kind of, hey, you know what, this is a big takeaway or this is something that a lot of people don't know about but probably should when they go to make sour beer? So the Esther's article was an interesting one for me. I, I tend to write whatever I'm really interested in at the time. And uh, that article got started for me because we had a um, a house culture. Uh, it's a mixed culture, but mostly Brett, that had sat for a couple months and was getting a little neglect. But when we opened it up, it was just super bright. Uh, the Erlenmeyer flask was smelled of um, tropical fruit, very just floral and tropical. And that got me thinking a lot about esters. One of my goals with this one was to kind of show people how I actually think about like yeast and fermentation and try to get into that level of why not only what forms but kind of where it forms and how it how it's created along the way with some of the more um metabolic processes and things that go on and some of those things are purely informational you don't need to know what how they work or what goes on there to make great beer but in some cases knowing kind of where these chemicals come from does give you a little bit of an insight into how to steer a sour beer or any beer one direction or another to try to maximize those things one of the things i thought was really interesting and I think it's safe to say that sour beer is one of the least researched um, alcoholic beverages as far as pure scientific research goes. You're throwing the curve off. Uh, well, when it comes down to it, you know, I, I still rely on a lot of primary research done by done by scientists and PhDs out there who are who are in the labs and actually have the uh, the gas chromatographs and the uh, spectrophotometers and the things to to measure these these processes that, that I really don't have access to. But something I, I try to do is look into similar processes that have been studied in other areas like wine or spirits. And one of the things that with the Esther's article that I was able to um, get a good bit of information from is the s studies that have been done on bourbon, rum, and other spirits that are aged in barrels and some of the processes and, and chemicals that go through that come out of oak are transformed into esters over time. And as you read these studies and some of these chemicals, you, you're reading descriptors that just click in your mind like, oh, I've tasted this in, you know, a dozen sour beers before. And so some of the stuff in the article that, that I think was really new to me was um, – Ideas like uh, syringic acid forming into uh, 
into an ester called ethyl syringate. You're making that up. Just trying to sound smart again, huh? I, it's kind of an oddball acid that comes out of oak and in some cases, and I think specifically it comes out of toasted oak, but when it's converted into an ester, it has like a tobacco fig kind of decadence to its aroma. And I, I can certainly think of um, sour beers out there that, that showcase that those qualities. And I've always wondered, you know, where where's that coming from? And I think in this case, a lot of times they are coming specifically out of the oak and then being transformed by the mixed cultures into these aromas. Syringic acid. Is yeah. this a new term for you, Jay? Oh, yeah. This is all way a out of weird my one. <laughs> Syringic. It hey, make... was new for me, too. I'd never read I'd never read about that one before. Well, it makes <laughs> me think about, you know, the possibilities of, you know, bourbon barrels being integrated into sour beers, which is always kind of a... It's a point of trepidation, I guess, for me, because I think the flavors are so extreme in bourbon barrels. I mean, just look at, you know, I, I don't know a lot about bourbon production, but I think it's a clear spirit going into the oak barrel, and then it assumes all yep. of its flavor from the oak barrel, and bourbon is very flavorful. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just imagine that going and, you know, affecting a beer, plus this kind of clear alcohol that's, you know, also introducing kind of a boozy component to it. But all these different esters that can be formed from the oak barrel is not something I've thought too much about. You know, usually think about the oak barrel. It's like, oh, I'm getting char, I'm getting tannin, I'm getting a little bit of the the booze or the wine that was in the oak barrel. But so interesting to think about the interactions of the yeast with what had been happening in the oak barrel there too. Yeah, I agree. And the the other one that was interesting to me is um, there's a term that gets thrown around in sour beer descriptors and, and beer descriptors in general that's like a, a cherry pie ester. Beers that don't have cherries in them but have that cherry-like um, aroma going on. And when we're trying to determine where that might be coming from, it actually seems like that is a chemical that starts as a uh, aromatic alcohol that comes out of hops and is later transformed by uh, by both um, Sack and Brett into an ester that I am going to skip the name of right now because I don't have it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's actually it's terpenyl butyrate is what the uh, the one we re- that I wrote about. But it's um, it's interesting to think about where some of these things arise from because uh, a lot most sour beers in my process use no hops, and I've never encountered much of a uh, of a cherry pie ester formation. But you find it in a lot of Belgian beers, especially like Belgian quads and things, and those um, are pretty highly hop styles. So it makes sense that that they would. Um, some of these precursors actually don't come from the yeast at all. They they need to be introduced in other other areas of the process, and then they're transformed later down the line. Well, that's really interesting because I, I would agree that in, in our beers at the Rare Barrel, we don't have a strong cherry pie aromatic component to it. We drive a lot of cherry flavor, especially mm-hmm. in our red and dark base beers. Their interaction with lactobacillus and also, to a certain extent, some of our Brett and PDO drives a huge cherry aspect in our red and dark warts to the point where we've we've gotten comments many, many times about people challenging us that y- you put cherries in this beer. Like, 
why don't you list the cherries in this beer? And there's no cherry mm-hmm. in it. But that did, that hasn't manifested itself as an aromatic. And, uh, you know, our our hopping rate is extremely low. It's about one barrel, uh, oh, sorry, one pound of low alpha acid hops in about a 30-barrel batch. So that's, as we mentioned in the, the last episode, check saws or EKG. So I'm wondering, uh, Matt, if you, if you, if this inspires you to kind of, you know, build a wart, which is always, a, you know, for me, I like hot side versatility. So making a wart that can become many different beers, but maybe this is a choice you have to make early on to try and drive this aromatic. Is that something you're interested in doing or have done already? <laughs> It is it is something I've been interested in doing, and in fact, incorporating more hops in the in the sour beer process is something I've been thinking a lot about ever since I wrote the um, Tannins article last year. And that's something that, as my blending program has kind of gone forward, I do. We have tried to incorporate a few base beers that at least have some hopping to uh, capitalize on some of the compounds and and. Uh, effects that the the hops will give you down the line. Gotcha. And you mentioned before about, you know, you've got many directions you can go when it comes to developing your ester profile. We've talked a little bit about the esters that can come from barrel character, the esters that can come from hops. And I think those are two bases that, you know, people don't think about all the time when they think about the aromatic components in their beers. But what what other directions have you found, if any, and and what what has been interesting to you in the in the field of esters? Esters are, I, I would say, just as far as sour beers go in general. I like for my palate to have a beer that has at least some balance between fruit and floral esters with the components that I more classically define as funk which would be your phenols and the the little more um, earthy, farmy, spicy uh, things that you're getting out of some of the more aggressive Brett strains as far as, you know, it's this this general term of funk, but it's more specifically chemicals that aren't, they're not esters. Most esters don't take on these, what we would classically called funk in a sour beer. They're they're this they're fruit forward or floral for the most part. And there are exceptions, like we were talking about the uh the syringic acid then ethyl syringate can form these um little more fig and uh and tobacco. There's some um esters that can form out of vanilla compounds that come out of oak that are um can be a little smoky or burny. But as far as ester formation goes, I, I think it comes down to thinking about fermentation temperature, strain variance, you know, giving a beer the opportunity to to produce these compounds by um, encouraging the right fermentation temperatures, which for esters usually is a little warmer. Uh, it tends to be if you you know, ferment or age your, your sour beers uh, colder than sta- standard ale temps, you're going to reduce ester production, that type of thing. And I, I don't know that there's any magic bullet as far as, you know, certainly the goal is not to create the most ester forward beer in the world. A good example of that is if you ever drink the beer that comes off of your stir plate, 
um, for a yeast starter, that is uh, tends to be an extremely ester forward example of what a beer could be if, if esters are just pushed to their maximum level. And it's typically not that pleasant to drink, but um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's finding a balance in all things. Do you think that the timing of the introduction of acid in your sour beer production has a strong effect on ester formation? That's a great question, and I don't I don't know the answer to that. I don't I don't know that that's been studied. There's a general concept of how esters do form in beer, and it seems that it's an equilibrium based reaction. So not only can esters form, but they can also be broken down, broken down, and they will do so um, at random. But they'll balance into an equilibrium. So. As long as there are active yeast in the beer, brett or sack, and you have uh, a high concentration or you know a, a, a presence of acid and a presence of alcohols in, in various forms, you're going to create esters. The the sack and the brett have uh, enzymes actually bound on their surfaces that will help to. Uh, enzymatically move these processes along so that you do have ester formation. But the timing of those things as to what esters are formed, that's, it's hard to say that that really is something that needs more research. And I know you're talking a lot about ester formation, but just, you know, the, the more you talk about it, the more uh, I'm thinking, is, is there as much research available on the ester breakdown that you just mentioned, you know, there's a lot of things, oh, how do we drive flavor? How do we encourage flavors? But if there's a breakdown that reaches an equilibrium, how much is that part of this studied or have you come across anything about that? There's not a ton of research out there um, that shows actual hard numbers on that. I, I can think of two sources that did do some that have some information there. Um, Chad Jacobson's thesis on um, primary fermentation with Britannomyces did look at the breakdown of isoamyl acetate, which is a common ester in uh, Hefeweizen's, the uh, banana-flavored ester. And certain strains of Britannomyces, when they're introduced into a beer, will break that down and then replace it with other esters that seem to be those strains uh, will preferentially create. And there's some gentlemen on the Milk the Funk group that have done uh, research into this as well, and I believe their study found a similar, similar information in that certain esters um, that are – well, let me take a, a – I've kind of walked myself into a corner here. I'll just take a step back and say that every strain of yeast – Brett or sac have these enzymes on their surface that promote ester formation. And they're not all identical. And various strains seem to come with their own version of this enzyme that has a preference as to what esters will form versus break down. Um, certain sac strains will highly favor one type of ester, while Britannomyces, if introduced later into a beer with that ester, 
will actually break it back down and the components will be reassembled into esters that the um that that strain of brett actually favors boy my brain hurts <laughs> sour beer is complicated yeah. matt jeez yeah and it's you know the this uh, article was one that for me was more of a um let's just geek out on the science as much as as possible and just you know really appeal to the the hardcore um, beer nerds out there and let them, you know, let, let the, uh, the science do the talking. But in reality, the article, it gives you a lot of the same information that, that we already knew and hopefully augments it with some, some interesting science about ester formation. And, and there's a couple basics. Um, you know, if you want to, basically there's ways to increase or decrease ester formation in beer. Um, increasing temperature to a point tends to produce more esters. Increasing oxygenation early on will decrease ester formation to a degree, but it also uh, over oxygenation or the oxygen kind of plays a mixed role in these things. Wort composition. This was something that came out of uh, research for lager in the lager breweries. Um, the the goal of of you know fermenting a clean lager is to reduce ester formation as much as possible. And I actually discovered that es- that um, adjunct brewing naturally decreases ester formation um, by reducing the amount of um, well, it's a carbon to nitrogen balance in the wort. And I, it's a, it's actually a bit over my head uh, without because I don't don't brew. Um, loggers or pay that much attention to my to my um malt bills as far as uh the like c to n ratios and those type of things but uh, i kind of run through some of this stuff in the article just to you know give brewers the down and dirty on what to do uh what different things that you can do to beer will have what effects will they have on the ester profile well, if you guys want to read more about this, head on over to sourbeerblog.com. Uh, I got two last quick questions. One, Matt, would you like to hang on for a segment and answer some questions? And two, how's your uh, blending apprentice, Kale, doing? Uh, Kale's doing great. And, yes, I'd love to uh, to hang on for some questions. Kale and I are both going to be at uh, NHC um, for any of the listeners that are that are going to Baltimore's Homebrew Con this year. So we're looking forward to meeting a bunch of people there, and we're going to be bringing some of our sour beers along, too, for club night. Hell so that's, yes. uh, yeah. that's going to be fun. Very cool. So uh, definitely keep an eye out for the dream team of sour beer blending, <laughs> Kale and Matt. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, and definitely if you know people come up and want to geek out and ask questions and stuff, it'd be really funny if you just were like, brew a golden ale and pitch some bottle dregs. Just brush everybody <laughs> off. I just have a pre-made pamphlet I can just yeah. hand out yeah. and be like, no, I, I really, I hope people do come up and talk to us. We, we love to geek out on this stuff and, and talk sour beer. That much has been made clear. Indeed. And we'll uh, get more into that after a quick break. We'll be right back on the Sour Hour. The 2016 Homebrew Con is coming. 
June 9th through 11th in Baltimore, Maryland. Be a part of the biggest and best homebrew event in the world with thousands of homebrewers from all walks of life. HomebrewCon is open to anyone 21 and older who is a member of the American Homebrewers Association or Brewers Association. Not an AHA member? Don't wait. Register now. The AHA is dedicated to promoting the community of homebrewers and empowering homebrewers to make the best beer in the world. Social packages and full conference registration is available now. Enjoy seminars from industry leaders like Sam Caligioni, Stan Hieronymus, Jeff Larson, Paul Sangster, and Drew Beecham. Visit the Homebrew Expo for the newest and best in equipment and ingredients. And don't miss Club Night, the biggest night in homebrewing. Register today at homebrewcon.org and join the Brewing Network in Baltimore for all the fun at HomebrewCon. Dr. Lambic on the line, and uh, we've actually got a, a hot call coming in, so let's go right to that. Yeah, Scott. before he has a seizure, apparently this is Epileptic Brewer in Cincinnati. You, you got like a service dog that maybe, you know, like sniffs it out when you're about to have a seizure? No, I did not. They've uh, started to fade quite a bit in the last few years. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. All right, glad to have you on, man. What's going on? Um, so, uh, I... Produce a lot of uh, kettle soured uh, beers, uh, which has gotten a lot easier thanks to uh, Dr. Lambic's uh, recent article that he published last November to uh, propagate up the bacteria and get to higher pitching rates. Um, so, something that I've observed with our Berliner Weiss and with a uh, kind of a reddish Flanders and with uh, when I sour a porter is a different pH and total acidity, and total acidity seems to increase on the darker beers, um, and they, of course, taste more sour. I am wondering if there's something to the buffering capacity in the wort that's halting that change in pH and letting the bacteria produce more lactic acid to increase the sourness, and what uh, your thoughts might be on modifying water chemistry to that same end to try and control how sour a uh, beer turns out. Excellent questions. Uh, Matt, you want to take the first crack at that? Sure. Um, thanks for uh, – I'm glad the uh, article is helping, helping you out with that. I've noticed some similar trends with um, our wart in terms of gravity. It seems that uh, up to at least a point, you do get a little bit more potential buffering and total acidity with the higher gravity warts up to – I haven't really gone over – like a 1060 starting gravity with any of the um, fast souring beers that I've done. But I've noticed that they do seem to achieve a little bit more total acidity than um, Berliner Weiss or things that have started down at like a 1030, 1035 lower, lower starting gravity. And I do think that probably is a likely to, to be a buffering capacity of the wart. 
as far as changing water chemistry goes, um, that's something I have a pretty limited experience with. I always use, um, always sort of taking Gordon Strong's approach, or at least what my understanding of his approach is uh, with water chemistry. And I start with RO water, and then I build back in just enough calcium uh, to support a healthy fermentation, but I don't really tinker with it beyond that. I think you definitely could uh, adjust your water chemistry to help to buffer pH change and in the long run allow lactobacillus to create more total acidity. I think the only thing you'd have to be careful with that is it's easy. It would be easy to go too far and start to produce beers that have a mineral, a minerality or a saltiness uh, to them as well. Yeah, and I would uh, echo Matt's statement that, we, you know, at the Rare Barrel, I think we see more total acidity in our red and dark uh, malt bill. Uh, the one thing I'll just add on to that when it comes to the gravity issue, we made um, kind of more sessionable versions of our red and dark, which increase in gravity about two points Play-Doh from our gold. So our gold is about 12 Play-Doh, the red's about 14, and the dark's about 16. We basically made versions of the red and the dark that were at about 12 Play-Doh or maybe even a little bit less. And those also you could see the increase in total acidity. We didn't have them measured, or maybe I do somewhere, but just just the perception was they were more sour beers. Now, to me, maybe points to some part of the grist composition that's uh, contributing to that. Both of those beers did have crystal malt, and I think beers that we've made with crystal malt seemingly have more acidity. Maybe there's more complex carbohydrates that the bacteria can convert into acid um, more readily over time than some of the, the yeast in there. Or, you know, another way to look at it is, you know, just the perception of acidity, I think, is quite a bit different, which wouldn't be measured in TA, but I think a beer with some sweetness to it, which sometimes darker malt bills will have, the perceived acidity is, is increased as well, where you're adding a sweet to a sour instead of just a dry to a sour, and you're just getting a lot more perception of acidity in the sweetness there. So I, I, I can't explain it kind of on a deeper level than that. And then water chemistry, I'll just echo what Matt said. I think playing it conservative, playing it safe, playing it simple is, is the way to go with sour beer because we don't, I would say, across the board, I've, I haven't heard anyone you know, have a strong case for what the water chemistry of a sour beer should be. But the one thing I'll say is that uh, when we had Tim Clifford from Santa Darius, you know, their their water is has a lot of minerality to it, and they make fantastic sour beer. So Yeah, they don't it, touch it at all, do they? They don't, but it, it's got so much in it that it, it's definitely a big component of their beers. So it's not like you have to go the conservative route. It's it's more that we just don't know yet, I guess, what the, what the impact is there. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks for calling uh, Epileptic Brewer, and uh, I'm, I feel a little ridiculous. I, I was I figured the jo- the the name was a a joke. I was screwing around with the whole seizure thing, but yeah, you'll cut that out, right? Whoops. Yeah, I'll cut it out in post. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, you know what we should do? I want to do a. Um, Let's do it. Whatever it is. A uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I have great judgment, so you know this is going to be good. A uh, sour hour, a public service announcement. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and it was um, it was inspired by uh, Alex Bullock's email. Uh, and Alex wrote in and said, uh, hey, guys, uh, he's, this is another guy from uh, Canada writing in Ontario. He said, a question more about uh, barrel conditioning than sour beer specifically, but we cover, you know, barrels in detail. He said, uh, once running some clean beer through my barrels, I plan on using them for long-term sour funky beers. So he said, uh, I'll be receiving uh, a used bourbon barrel soon. I want to fill it up with a clean Russian Imperial Stout. What complicates things is I have not brewed the beer yet, but I should be receiving the barrel in a week or so. He said he's also in the process of moving. He said, my ideal plan is to receive the barrel and immediately fill it with the fermented Russian Imperial, but I don't uh, think it will be possible. I may have to brew at my old house and then move it to the new house and put the barrel uh, and fill it ASAP. Uh, But um, I will risk oxidation uh, when I physically drive it from one house to the other. He said, is there a way to store an empty bourbon barrel for a few weeks that does not require using the storage solution or stripping the character out of the barrel? He said, this would allow me to brew the beer at my new house uh, and then uh, fill the barrel without the headache of driving the stout from one place to the next. He said, but I'm worried the only way to store the barrel uh, would be with the storage solution. He says here, now this is where the public service announcement comes in. Burning sulfur sticks may possibly, uh, may be a possibility for me, but it would be a last resort. And uh, I thought you could uh, take it away with it. Like something more like, you know, um, uh, hey, uh, you know, this is Jay from the uh, the Rare Barrel and the Sour Hour. Uh, you know, I kid around a lot on the Brewing Network, but sulfur and barrels is no laughing matter. You know, it's just like a, a true public service announcement. Well, I don't want to get too official with it because this is, this is, a, this is a serious safety issue here, and it's, that if you have a spirit barrel, you have to consider this is not a wine barrel. Wine is about, you know, what, 13% alcohol or something like that. Spirits are 40% alcohol, actually a lot higher in, in oak barrels before blending later on in the packaging process. So, you know, a lot of alcohol in that. Do not burn sulfur sticks. Don't burn anything in a bourbon barrel or any type of spirit barrel because it will explode. It's just going to light on fire the whole barrel, and that's that's bad. That's my professional opinion. Yeah. The more you there know. You go. The more you know. Okay. I was hoping you would have that queued up. <laughs> but, uh, but going back to your uh, kind of the brewing part of that question, yeah, if you just keep the heads swollen of the oak barrel, you know, so put water on one top, Flip it, put water on the other top, and just keep that going to make sure that those will stay uh, swollen. You should be good. There shouldn't be, I mean, you may have uh, leaks in the staves, but really the main source of the leaks is the head. And if you just keep that going, that should be okay going forward. You shouldn't have to fill it. But, yeah, you're right. Fill it as soon as possible. All right, here is a question from Justin Ferguson. Justin says, hey, guys, love the show. Uh, packed with tons of useful info. Fill in the necessary fluff and ass kissing. He said, I had a question about a winery method called punching down. Recently saw that Crooked Stave does this with their fooders for fruit additions. Does this seem like a practical practice for homebrewers? Uh, it seems it would only uh, need to be used with whole fruit. And uh, I'm not sure if introducing additional oxygen to the fermenting vessel in order for bugs to excess sugars is worth the risk of acetic production. Yeah, good question. This is something that Garrett actually touched on in his uh, fruit refermentation talk at uh, Craft Brewers Conference. And also Garrett and Adrian touched on in the Jester King episode of the Sour Hour. So I would uh, refer you back to that. I, I don't have a lot of experience doing punch downs. I know it's a borrowed technique from the wine industry, which is very usually very transferable to sour beer making. But um, can you Can you describe it? Do you know it well enough? 
Yeah, so you have uh, fruit, you add it to beer, the fruit floats to the top, so the fruit, some of the fruit is not in contact with the beer. So you literally push it down ah. into the beer, hmm. so it hydrates the beer and there's extraction. Using what? Just paddles? Just f- manual manual labor? Yeah, well, I mean, if you're a home brewer, it can be as simple as like a stainless steel spoon or, yeah, they, they in, in a more pro setting, they kind of have like a, a dish kind of shape thing uh, with a long a long stick and then you really like you know you start pushing the the grapes or whatever fruit you're talking about down but uh, I don't know Matt have you ever had to, to punch down any of your uh, fruit projects at home I ferment in um, carboys so I can't physically punch them down but I do something similar if there's a thick fruit mat on top of the beer I will um, just gently kind of swirl the carboy to the point where there's enough movement in there to start to break up that fruit mat and get the fruit um, basically swirling around in the beer. It's like rousing a carboy. It's not ideal because it can stir up, you know, yeast sediment and things on the bottom as well. But one of the issues with the floating fruit mats is that some of the fruit is is potentially exposed to more oxygen and it's like just the right environment up on top for mold to form. Whereas once you either punch down or swirl it up and get that fruit back down into the beer, it um, helps to discourage if there wasn't going to be any mold formation, it'll it'll stop that. Wouldn't, like if you um, did this punch down method or even the swirling, wouldn't the fruit just kind of rise right back up to where it was within a few minutes? And what would, because wouldn't, wouldn't you need like ex- much longer exposure time for it to do what you're hoping it does? Like I was imagining the punch down like, holding the fruit down submerged somehow right what is the point of just doing it if it's just going to float right back up it really for me it depends on the type of fruit i notice it the most um with um cherries and raspberries when i've used them and i think the that what happens is those fruits aren't they're they're a little bit buoyant from the get-go but um the re-fermentation is putting little pockets of CO2 into the fruit mat that's really helping to hold it up. It seems like once you swirl it around a few times and get that to break up, every time you do it, you'll notice the fruit. um, It does float back to the surface, but it's not pushing up above the surface of the beer nearly as much. And after doing that, maybe every, you know, if you do the swirling or a punch down, Every couple of days, it, you only have to do it a few times before the fruit has stopped. Uh, it, it takes on more beer and less gas or something, and it just it hangs down in the, the water, the surface, uh, below the surface better. Hmm. It gives it a chance to saturate it a little bit more, but the ideal thing would be to have something almost like a French press, right? Because then you're pushing it down, and then it's not resurfacing to the top. You can have right. the liquid up. But anyone who's more interested in, you know, as Matt said, you know, raspberries and cherries, he's had more problems with kind of being buoyant. Uh, I'll refer you guys to uh, the old David Letterman segment, Will It Float? Go back and watch that. And it's very informative. And I had less than a 50% guess correct rate on that one. I, you'll be amazed about what stuff floats and what stuff does not float. It was a recurring segment? Yeah. Just so it's it's probably on the YouTubes, so yeah. just go back and watch. I it. was going to play it, but it's they're like four minute clips, so yeah, will it flow? No time. Check it out. 
okay, let's do one more before we take a break. Let's do before we do that, Matt. Are you? Do you want to hang on, or do you want to? Should we cut you loose after this? No, I'm. I'll hang on. I enjoy. I, I'd like to. I get. I enjoy getting to answer the questions. This is a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, thanks for thanks for hanging on with us, and let's get to that last one before we get to a beer break. Yeah, let's. I'm trying to find it here. Uh, I thought it was about uh, strawberries, which is really problematic. Here we go, strawberries. Uh, this is from Ryan Mathis, who says. I'm a homebrew who has uh, recently been brewing sours. My first batch was a Flanders red that turned out great. Um, so I've been ramming up more and more uh, sour production. I came across information on Milk the Funk about strawberries and that some people have reported a plastic phenolic off flavor in beers uh, to which they added strawberries. I have an amber sour that has a nice strawberry note in the aroma. I would like to accentuate it with fruit. I've got 10 pounds of organic strawberries. They taste great. So I froze them, and I'm planning to add them to um, the beer uh, I'm curious if you have any uh, encountered this off flavor that you've used strawberries with. Definitely. We've talked about it, I believe, on, on the show, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and if there's any special processing that you do with the strawberries that you use, whole fruit, puree. At the Rare Barrel, we use puree. We've made uh, one strawberry beer, and it turned out fine. But I, I absolutely know what uh, this email I was talking about where the, you know, I've had plenty of strawberry beers that have this. Kind of phenolic off flavor. So I, first off, I applaud you that you're going to attempt to make this beer with your good, already good Flanders red. I would caution you maybe to split off that batch. Just you know, in case I'm, you get some of that. Thing. You know, I'm all about mitigating your risk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you put so much time and effort into these sour beers and maybe just have a kind of sidecar batch that's with strawberries. But Matt, have you had a chance to work with strawberries, and have you had some successes or failures you can share? Just one failure. I've only um, brewed one, or I blended one beer with strawberries and bananas, actually, and um, it's still in the carboy because I haven't been comfortable taking it out to serve it yet. Um, It's just, it's done exactly what we're talking about. There is a a fairly harsh plasticky sort of like rubber bands and burnt phenol that that kicked up in it and i'm i'm comfortable letting it sit for a while and see if it evolves into something more pleasant but at at present it's been on the strawberries for about i'm going to say 8 to 9 months now and so far it's still a no go well, and did I think I heard you say bananas too? Yeah, I was I was trying to replicate one of my favorite Chobanis, uh, so I, <laughs> I just used um, I used whole bananas and um, whole homegrown strawberries and uh, about equal volumes of each. I think I put about two pounds per gallon of each into the beer, and um, the banana character actually is it's pretty pleasant, but the well, at least I think the phenol is the phenols and the the off flavors are coming from the strawberries because it definitely mirrors what I've read other people's experiences were. Well, the last uh, sentence of Ryan's email says um, his suspicion for all of the trouble with strawberries that people seem to have is the quality of the fruit people are using. Do you think there's merit to that? That's hard to say. I I would say not necessarily. Um, the strawberries that that I had used, um, my parents grew in their garden. They were never exposed to any type of pesticides or anything. And to eat them uh, fresh, which is what how I used them, they were great. Uh, they they were really tasty. And um, at first, when you put them in for the first month or so, I 
after about one month, it seemed pretty promising. There wasn't much banana character, but there was a good bit of strawberry, and I wanted to keep leaving it. But within about another month, the bananas were picking up nice, and then it seemed like the whole thing was taking on more of a harsh phenol that wasn't as pleasant. All right. Did you did you kettle sour with Chibani or? <laughs> no, no, it was. Um, this was a partial blend out of my um, out of the blending program. So it's just a, a combination of golden sours. They were all. Um, I think the youngest one in the blend was like six months old, and the oldest one was uh, maybe twelve months old. That type of thing. So, and the other beers that we blended using similar components, uh, none of them developed this phenol. It specifically was in the strawberry and banana batch. Interesting. Well, quickly on the bananas, I've never heard, I don't think, of anybody using bananas as an adjunct. Did you dice them? Did they turn like that black goopy thing in the in the carboy? Like, how did that work? I let them in. <laughs> this is funny. I let them. I let them get pretty soft in the um, in their skins, and then I just peeled them and and like pushed them down into the carboy hole. So they're just kind of floating in there like these pale. Uh, <laughs> we were calling it ghost dong IPA for a while. Yeah, I want everyone to. Yeah, it, everybody it's got a real a really funky look to it with these like bananas just floating in there. Well, and I want everyone to picture Doctor Lambic trying to jam a banana through the hole of a carboy. <laughs> <laughs> with, oh, yeah, they with all latex gloves on. Ever so slightly too big too, so it's like <laughs> shoving them in there, and as you push them in, so like just jokes. like you know, smush <laughs> would form. There's a lot the more, a lot more complaints about too big than too small, as they say. <laughs> Don't shake your head at me, dude. All right, come on, let's take a break, please. Okay, <laughs> I need, to, I need to wash my mouth out with soap. I, I there's so many jokes in my head. <laughs> Exploding, but let's uh, exploding. let's let's uh, take a break, and we'll be right back on whatever this is. When I order a beer, I want my server to know more about it than I do. I want someone who enjoys good beer and loves helping others enjoy it too. I want someone who knows how to pour a perfect pint for every beer style. I want a cicerone. The Cicerone Certification Program is creating the type of people who help you enjoy great beer. Home brewers and craft beer lovers know beer is more flavorful and complex than ever, and it takes some serious knowledge to store and serve beer right. Cicerones know beer. There are three levels in the Cicerone Program. Certified Beer Server, Certified Cicerone, and Master Cicerone. Cicerones are truly the sommeliers of beer. The best beer locations have a certified Cicerone on staff. Relaxed and unpretentious, Cicerones are tested on storing and serving beer, beer styles, flavor and tasting, the brewing process and ingredients, and pairing food with beer. Learn more about your next beer guide at Cicerone.org. Certified Cicerone, because it takes top talent to present a perfect pint. talk in the break not that much really no some hockey talk you didn't know that i played i think i knew that you played i just didn't know what position oh i see but yeah goalie very very impressive last line of d you've got quick twitch muscles that's right i got quick reactions yeah on the mic and on the ice yeah do you huh huh (laughs) 
<laughs> what were we talking about? <laughs> All right, let's do uh, some more questions while we still have some time here. This Before we do that, I yeah. want to mention some of our great sponsors besides Sour Beer Blog, who Dr. Lambic is joining us now, answering some great questions. But uh, I also want to mention the Wine and Hop Shop at wineandhop.com. They're featuring our great friends at Omega Yeast and Gig Yeast. Do the whole deal, being listeners, shipping rate, blah, blah, blah. Wineandhop.com. Boom. <laughs> All right, more questions? Sure. Uh, this is from Jordan. Uh, he said, I'm planning on doing a lacto or possibly PDO mix, and Brett mix culture secondary fermentation in a used wine or spirit barrel. The, per- the uh, beer will probably be around um, 3 to 5 P going into the barrel. P? Play Oh, yeah, man. I always get confused with the Play-Doh thing. Uh, can you, do we know a, tr- a quick translation for, uh, for gravity? What is the read oh, by Play-Doh? specific gravity? Yeah. Uh, tw- uh, 10, 12 to 10, 20? So somewhere in the, in the teens or something going into yeah. the barrel. All right. I have found uh, some great info on pitch rate for Brett, but most of the pitch rates for bacteria seem anecdotal. Do you happen to know of any pitch rates per wooden barrel that you would suggest adding from an active bacteria starter? We'll most likely be propping up commercial bacteria cultures in an anaerobic lab setting. Mm. He said, just there's a little bit more. He said, I read in the awesome American Sour book, um, that was uh, Michael Townsmer's book. He said that Tommy Arthur from Lost Abbey uses a one and a quarter liter starter to his beers. Um, however, from a cell count point of view, how much should I really be adding to each barrel to get the best result? Wow. Uh, extremely complex question. I'll try to give you a simple answer because I got to say that there's no, there's no comprehensive study of here are all the pitch rates you should do for Brett, Lactopedio, and here are the best results. I, 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 don't, I don't think that exists at this point. What my experience has been is that the more you can add of everything, the better, because it's so hard to grow these microorganisms because they're not designed to ferment really the media that they're in or the beer that they're going into. So we always try to, you know, harvest and pitch and blend to the higher end of things, um, higher inoculations. But so that I'd say in that sense, we don't, we do think about, pitch rates to a certain extent or just like how much of a culture we're putting into a beer more specifically, but it's not an exact science for us right now. I think when we get closer into driving certain flavors and using pitch rates as a pitch rates as a variable, I think definitely we'll be honing in on that. But for now we're just trying to get what we can. But, uh, Matt, do you kind of grow things up specifically to a certain volume or to a certain pitch rate or cell count, or what? what's your process on that? I've had successful beers with low and high pitch rates when you're, when you're looking at, like, long-term aging. Some of the first sours that I sent you guys, um, they were aged. Uh, I did, like, a lactobacillus first process with those, but they were pretty low pitch rates, like one vial of white labs, which is only, like, somewhere around two to two and a half billion cells going into, like, a five-gallon batch. But they don't develop acidity real quickly. It took them a couple of months to develop it uh, pretty modestly, and then it it grew even more over the, like, six- to nine-month period with those. Um, The only 
measurements I've taken concretely is when I'm I've measured sour like fast sour beers that worked well. I was finding that the that the lactobacillus pitch rates mirrored this the kind of traditional pitch rate for ale yeast, uh, like one um, million cells per milliliter of wort per degree of Play-Doh. So when you're looking at like a per five gallons, you're somewhere in that like 180 to 200 billion cell count. But that's for fast souring, like getting, you know, this aggressive and quick souring within the first 48 hours or so. For pitching into uh, something that's already been fermented with Saccharomyces, I think you probably can go higher or lower than that and, and have success. And when it comes to pediococcus, I, I have no no experience with um, cell counts on that. I, I don't know that I've read anything measuring that specifically. Although I do know that um, bootleg biology is releasing, and I might be wrong on that, but I think he's releasing a um, sort of a new or a new to the market strain of PDO that's supposed to be a little more aggressive and faster souring than the traditional strains. So that might be something to check on the Milk the Funk group and see if they have any uh, any cell count experience with um, the creation of that strain. That's uh, an exciting development. And I'll, I'll just say kind of maybe a blanket statement when, and I think you'll hear this a lot on the show, when we don't know the exact answer. I think the answer, when, when I don't know something at the rare barrel, which is, pretty much every day, five or six times a day, <laughs> you just kind of fall back on principles. So, you know, oh, okay, I don't know what the exact right pitch rate is. You know, try out a few different pitch rates if you can. You know, I know it's, it's more work, but if you can split it into smaller batches and grow them up at different amounts, then, you know, you can have this rich data set, this rich comparison going forward and you know it'll inform what you do in your sour beer program and i know you know a lot of what i advocate is getting more glass filling up your house or apartment more with carboys annoying your significant other your parents yeah in in my case my parents (laughs) uh and also my girlfriend uh with all the things the fermentations i have going which mostly now are hot sauces, by the way. Which oh. is, that's maybe a different episode. Doing we your own get hot it, sauce. We should get into that because that's going very well. I really? Have to say. I have the best hot sauces. Oh, man. Was, the June episode. We now a, know the topics. My bad. Tell those wicked weed guys to hit the bricks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, anyway. Yeah. Just uh, spread it out and do a bunch of different experiments and and see. I mean, flavor is the ultimate driver. The, the, the results are what... That's what's going to kind of inform your opinion and then let us know what happens from there. I mean, we're all in this together and, you know, like I say a lot, I don't know what I'm doing. We don't know what we're doing, but we're trying to share in the, the failures, the successes and the experiments and share our results so we can all make better sour beer. So anyway, maybe I just go off on uh, those little tangents when I don't know the answer or something, but, uh, you know, I, 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 fe- I feel like it's a good thing to fall back on. Some consistent principles when the answer is unknown. So, all 
All right. Well, I was going to say one more, but we're already way over time. So you want to maybe just call it? Well, someone's got a hockey game they got to get uh, to. Yeah. So. Oh, no, that has nothing to do with this. Oh, no, I swear. Okay. We're just over time. Well, Matt, thanks for joining us if you're still there and you can hear us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh, next time we have you on, we'll have to uh, arrange some beers to be here, too. Some yeah, new, man. new batches. It's been a while. We miss it. I think it's been like a year. Yeah, it's been a bit. Uh, it sounds great. I'll make sure to get something out to you. All right. Thanks a lot, Matt. Have a great night. Thanks, Doc. Thank you. You too. All right. Big ups to uh, Dr. Lambic. Go visit his site, sourbeerblog.com. Great articles. We got into a lot of the Esther stuff. Go see his profile on Upland as well. While you're at it, listen to other BN shows if you want to or not. Yeah, the the, uh, soon-to-be starting uh, Jay Goodwin Hot Sauce Hour. Ooh. (laughs) The hot tub with... (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Boom. Hot tub sauce machine. This is terrible. Okay, it's time to wrap up. Yeah, that's we're getting a lot of knows from from the studio audience but anyway thanks for joining us on the q a session thanks for dealing with me tonight and uh yeah we'll get some uh some more guests on in the upcoming months and continue the work that we're doing here and thank you all for listening again we'll be back in a few weeks long break in a few weeks on sarah goodbye the brewing network